Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of November 4th, 2019. On the show today, listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim talks about the rise and fall of the Osborne Lights. Before we do all that, let's bring in the man who points out that if you wear cowboy clothes, you're ranch dressing. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? So where do you bring up ranch dressing, Len? Because are you familiar with Misfit Market? I am. Laurel told me about it. Okay. Well, now, see, this is the thing. Women get us in trouble because Laurel heard about it, told you about it. Nancy actually signed us up for it. Really? Okay. So what's the, what's the premise for this? Tell our listeners. Misfit Market gets you vegetables at a steep discount because these pieces of produce aren't, uh, as we say, camera ready. They aren't the most attractive or they're, they're odd sized or that sort of thing. And so- right. We got our first box last month, which had entirely too much kale in it. And the second box showed up just yesterday. And I'm the one who does all most of the cooking in the house. So yesterday I was I made a stir fry with bok choy. And I was you know, as waiting to do today's show. I'm researching turnips because as of this point, all I know to do with a turnip is it's it's a large paperweight that you have to throw away after a while. It's like the it's the radish's bad cousin, right? Like, what do you do with turnips? Well, and that's the thing. There were also radishes, so I've I've, I've got this disreputable produce that I've got to figure out what to do with. So, so the the idea the idea is that the, you get like slightly blemished or uh or not quite good looking enough for Whole Foods mm-hmm. display vegetables, and you get it as a steep discount. Yeah, it, I mean it's all delicious. It's all fresh, but it just at the same time I'm it's thinking, like, like what's the what's the root vegetable equivalent of hash browns? I think that's what you should make. But the problem is, you know, you can only do so much chopping. I mean, ugly is ugly, Len. <laughs> you, know, <and> it's, <laughs> you get a lot of attitude off of these vegetables. It's like, yeah, what are you looking at? It's like nothing, nothing. It, it, I think you look fine, sir. Yes. Misfit so. market. I love the idea. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, great idea. Just learning to use it now. All right, folks, let's do a shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, WB Fox, ENC, and Carter B, and longtime subscribers, Kyle R, Scott H, and Vernon R. These folks are the bouncers at the Christmas themed Club Tinsel in the Magic Kingdom. So if your light bulb and mistletoe game is on point, you just might be able to get in. It's a, it's a bar, right, Jim? Yeah. Club Tinsel. I'm yeah. pretty sure it's a bar. It should it should totally be a bar. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do the news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, I want to start off with a couple of uh, uh, shameless plugs mm-hmm. for our friend, uh, for our friends here. So our very good friend. Chris Eliopoulos is out with uh, the next book in his award-winning series, and this one is titled I Am Walt Disney. It's uh, co-authored with Brad Meltzer. The I Am Walt Disney story traces the story of Walt's life from Marceline through the creation of Disneyland and the ideas for Epcot. The thing I love about the book is that uh, although Chris draws Walt Disney as a kid throughout Mm -hmm. the entire book, he's a kid with a mustache. (laughs) (laughs) which is fantastic the uh the artwork is great it's very reminiscent of calvin and Hobbes, Mm -hmm. as far as i'm concerned uh chris is a good friend we go way back he's super talented works very very hard other titles in the series other titles in the series feature albert einstein amelia Earhart, uh, and george washington i I thought they they formed a band i'm not sure i haven't read all the books yet okay the uh the series is titled ordinary people change the world it's also being developed into a children's show on pbs uh, the I Am Walt Disney book would make a perfect holiday gift for young readers, I'm just saying. 
Have you seen this book, Jim? Yes, I have. And they, he does such nice work and, you know, manages to take a fairly complex story, a fairly complex life and create a nice through line. You know, I mean, it's it's a great kid's book. I, you know, it comes highly recommended. Yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic. I really, uh, really enjoyed reading it. Also, our, uh, our friend and longtime listener and filmmaker Seth Porges is out with a movie titled Class Action Park about the most insane amusement park ever built, Action Park in New Jersey. The New York Times tagline for the article is, quote, I'm quoting here, people were bleeding all over. Jim, I, I think theme park fans know the story of Action Park, but for those who don't, how would you describe the park's operating principles? Something along the lines of, most of you will probably be fine. <laughs> well, when Seth was putting this film together, he actually reached out and I was going to help out with this thing, but it, it got eclipsed by Nancy's surgery. I couldn't make it down to Jersey Ugh. to help out. But no, the, the, the thing about Action Park is that its basic principle was it wanted to be the most extreme theme park in the country. So I want to say that it was a water park slash coaster park. At one point, they had a uh, the first water slide that did the 360 and but they had with a quite, loop in it yeah with a loop in it yes. and, but they hadn't quite worked it out so they kept sending the human equivalent of test dummies down and it was like well how many teeth did you get knocked out it's true they said that the uh, the first person they sent down lost their teeth mm-hmm. in the slide because they weren't going fast enough and then people after that would slide down and they would the, the teeth were actually stuck into the walls of the water slide oh and and so you would you would ride over the teeth and, and your body would get scraped by them. It's it's in it's it's insane. On some of the rides that uh, that were motorized, mm-hmm. you got to decide how fast you wanted to go. One of the attractions was a tank game where you shot flaming tennis balls at each other. Uh, so crazy theme park, right? Imagine a theme park designed by adolescent children. That's what this was. Six people died at the park over the years. Injuries were common. It's a crazy story. Check out the trailer for Class Action Park on YouTube and look for it when it comes to your town soon. Congratulations, Seth. Yeah, that is a, uh, it's a great story. No, I agree. I agree. All right. On to, on to uh, listener questions. The good Dr. Katie writes, I just listened to a recent episode where you discussed Mark Davis's book, and I wondered if you had any recommendations for books about the history of Disney parks. Thanks for such an informative look at places that have given me such fond memories. So, Jim, any recommendations for books about the history of Disney parks? I just got a review copy of David Koenig's most recent book, The 55ers, which is talks about the pioneers who settled Disneyland. And it's really a reference book that's crammed with lots of stories. I mean, you, you literally get to meet everybody who was part of the opening cast of Disneyland. David chased a lot of these people down individually and got all sorts of great interviews with them. In fact, when we were discussing, for example, the Skyliner and its difficulties, and I told that story about the how the train derailed during the first week uh, Disney mm-hmm. was up and running, that story came from this book. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's just well worth seeking out if you want to know about the early, early days of Disneyland. What's the name of the book? It's called The 55ers. All right, cool. And a couple of other ones that I uh, saw were very highly rated on Amazon. Uh, Secret Stories of Walt Disney World, Things You Never Knew You Never Knew by Jim Corcus. And uh, Walt Disney's Imagineering Legends in the Genesis of the Disney Theme Park by Jeff Curdy. Those are the two that, uh, the two that I, would, uh, I would say get pretty good reviews on Amazon. So, uh, so 
I think those those three would be a good start, right, Jim? Yeah, yeah. Just just start there and then keep checking along. All right. Our BFF Kathleen P writes in with a new Disney survey asking about subscription boxes. So here are the questions, Jim, from this new Disney survey. How many subscription-based services do you or someone in your household currently subscribe to? Subscription-based services require you to pay a recurring fee, usually monthly or yearly, to access a product or service. So everybody knows about things like Netflix and Amazon Prime, but it also includes here uh, BarkBox and Mm -hmm. Stitch Fix. So uh, Jim, what is... What is Disney thinking about here and asking about like subscription subscription based boxes? There's, thinking back to our earlier conversation about uh, Misfit Market, I'm suddenly very very worried about the veggie veggie fruit fruit crew. Right, we're gonna get we're gonna get seconds of Mickey bars and Rice Krispie treats. We keep talking about this mantra, but we have the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World coming up, and you know there is heavy 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 pressure at the company to capitalize on this in every way possible. And so there's going to be a lot of merch, you know, a, a wall of merch that comes out, you know, oh, in 2021 okay. or thereabouts. And face it, not everybody's going to be able to make it down for a lot of this stuff. So one of the ideas that, that Disney wants to float sort of kicking the tires on is the notion of, okay, could I get exclusive pins? Could I get the T-shirts? You know, are you going to celebrate the individual lands and individual parks? Are we talking a quarterly box? Are we talking a box every month or so? So Most of these are monthly, right? They are. They are. Yeah. But at the, at the same time, you know, realistically, the price point tend to vary. It's, it's like $40, $50, sometimes $60. Yeah. And that's a month. They want to create the sense of, you know, you're getting a good value. So there's typically four and five different items at least in each of these boxes. And I want to say that Disney did do... Some blind box stuff. Didn't they have the Imagineering collection like a year or so back? With in fact, it was it was tied to Disneyland. Oh, that's the right. Haunted yeah, Mansion. they tried this briefly. It was a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. Part of the problem is when you go with the Haunted Mansion fans is that those folks don't kid around. They are very serious about the mansion, and if you're not delivering exactly what they want, they're incredibly vocal. So right. this one, as I understand it, is is a much further step back. It's you know celebrating the entire resort, and for example, they do twelve boxes. You know, one for example would celebrate Fort Wilderness, and so you you know you'd get a T-shirt with Hoopty Doo on it, or you know a mug or that sort of thing. And by the end of the twelve months, you'd have this amazing collection of items for Walt Disney. You know, celebrating the fiftieth anniversary of the huh. resort. But um, it's not a bad idea. I'm, I'm a little concerned about the price point because I know like like Birchbox, the price point somewhere between 10 and 15 dollars. We're not we're not talking about that for Disney, though, right? No, no. Okay. That's, right. you know, and one of the reasons that Disney is, in fact, looking at this is that Marvel's been doing this for a while. I want to say that there was a Star Wars version of this. And so it's, you know, the parks and resorts, you know, again, it's all about new revenue streams. So let's kick the tires here. And, and but right now, this is just basically data gathering at this point, you're okay. trying to decide what should we do? What are these people looking for? Jim, the, uh, the other question that Kathleen sent in for the survey that was really interesting was, how many loyalty programs do you currently belong to outside of Disney? And we've talked about Disney and loyalty programs for a long time. And I think the reason uh, why Disney doesn't do it is because they don't have to, right? We're all spending our money there anyway. What would even, what would a loyalty program even look like? I mean, what does diamond medallion status look like on a Disney uh, on a Disney loyalty program? How much money would you have to spend? 
Isn't this stepping into this market at the exact wrong time? Think about how many of the airlines have reworked their programs and made them so difficult at this point. Remember how Disney has the vacation club? It didn't sell timeshares because timeshares had such a lousy reputation. Yeah. You want to talk about an ill-timed effort. It's like at, at a time when airlines are like, well, yes, absolutely. You can use your points on an alternate Tuesday if, you know, you're walking backwards and wearing a blue tie. In my entire life, I think I've redeemed ex- uh, points for exactly two airline tickets. Oof. Okay. It never works out like for us. So, yeah, so I see your point. But a loyalty program, though. As opposed to what, though? I mean, that's the thing. It's not like it's not like there are there are that many other competing theme parks. A couple of things to remember here: we do we are two weeks out from the launch of Disney Plus, which is this huge effort of the company. This is one of those too big to fail situations. So yeah. the whole notion of whatever it is that gets people to sign up or to stay with Disney Plus, I can't help but think that if you. You stay at a Disney hotel, you know, or buy a Disney vacation package. You may be surprised to find, oh, you qualify for free for a year's worth of Disney Plus as part of our loyalty program. You know, what a surprise. Remember with Disney, it's always wheels within wheels. There are agendas that need to be served. And given the amount of money the company's poured into its subscription streaming service, the fact that they might just be starting up a loyalty program to help shore up Disney Plus isn't exactly a surprise line. So it'd be a it'd be a loyalty program associated with spending on Disney Plus or with all Disney spending. You know, it would be one of these things where hey, you you know you you sign up for it out ahead of the fiftieth anniversary because you want to acknowledge the folks who really spend big dough. And as a perk, as a plus, you know, it's like oh, you know, and you know, thank you for joining the loyalty program, and you either get. Disney Plus for free, you're severely discounted, which those folks who went to the D23 Expo back in August were able to get Disney Plus at a severe discount because, again, they're the early adopters. They, you know, they're the most passionate fans. So okay. just sort of watch this space and don't be surprised if, you know, as part of a loyalty program, Disney Plus is somewhere there in the mix. All right. That makes more sense then. Yeah, because uh, uh, in the era of theme parks, it doesn't, they don't have a whole lot of competition. Uh, there, but in terms of streaming services, yeah, yeah, they do. So on the okay, other so hand, again, getting back to Misfit Market, you know, there are warehouses full of dented Mickey ears. It's like absolutely, you're our loyalist customer. Oh yeah, yeah, it's true. They could uh, they could get rid of the uh, merchandise in the outlets. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, our our good buddy Eddie writes, uh, "Hi, Jim and Len, I'm running to ask if there are interesting but unadvertised Walt Disney World activities that I can impress my family with for an upcoming trip. It's been a few years since my wife and I have gone, but one of our favorite memories." was trying to find one of the hidden paintbrushes on Tom Sawyer Island. We found one, showed it to a cast member, and received a fast pass for our efforts. Does Disney do anything else like this that you're aware of in any of their parks or resorts? Jim, this is one of those things that the internet killed, along with department stores, right? Yeah. It used to be, you know, each of the hotels would have something. I mean, you know, remember remember when Wilderness Lodge, you know, you, you could sign up to be the family that... I mean, you had to get up at the butt crack of dawn, but it could be the one that went up on the roof and so, you know, raised the flag. Raised the flag. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there were always the, these little things, but you're right. You know, the fact that the internet made these things searchable. What Disney also found is that how can my child also be special? You know, and it's just sort of like, well, only one child can be special today, you know, per day. Yeah. And it just. They found for every child they made happy, there were five complaining parents. After a while, it's just sort of like, 
is it worth it to get you know a couple of angry guest letters after you've made one child happy? Yeah, the the net benefit is uh, probably zero. I will say that uh, each of the res- resorts does mm-hmm. a full slate of activities throughout the day, mm-hmm. and especially the deluxe resorts, they are everything from uh, you know uh, meeting cast members from different countries mm-hmm. to different arts and crafts and things like that. There's a schedule posted in the lobby of each resort. Go look for those. The ones at the Animal Kingdom are especially good. Oh, no. Any, uh, terrific. Yeah, where you can yeah, find out interesting things about different animals that are around the savanna or meet one of the cast members from Africa or things like that or uh, all kinds of other activities. Check those things out, though, because they're also great to do on your arrival or departure day if you don't want to go into a park. The center of gravity, you know, especially during the day, is out of the hotel. So, no, yeah. that would be an ideal thing to do just as you arrive or just before you head out to the airport. So, And most of these activities are like 30 minutes to an hour tops. Mm-hmm. And they run almost continuously. Like when one ends, another one will begin either immediately after or shortly thereafter. So you can come and go as you please. It's not like you have to stay all day. You can pick and choose the ones you want to do. I think it's a great way for kids to sort of relax and unwind at the, uh, at the resorts and have something to do, again, without spending money going into the parks. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, someone who wishes to remain anonymous ooh, writes... Mm-hmm. Have you heard anything about Skyliner expansion plans outside of Florida? I imagine that once the kinks are worked out, the most obvious use is as a replacement for the trams to Disneyland's Mickey and Friends and Pixar Pals parking. They might need to run a couple of them in parallel to handle the volume, but the way they continue to use loud, clunky, and just not very Disney tram systems to move people between two fixed points is kind of astonishing. All I got to say, Jim, is from your lips to God's ears, right? <laughs> my, my anonymous friend. <laughs> Have you heard anything about a Skyliner uh, system for California? I know that Disney is doing its damnedest to turn around the perception of the Skyliner in Florida. I mean, I'm sure you saw it just in the past day or so. Disney touting the fact that they have moved a million people. million people. One millionth rider. Yeah. 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 They're big so, on that number. Yeah. The thing I've heard about the Skyliner possibly coming to California, because remember, we're now on our second or third iteration of the transportation plan for Disneyland. <laughs> it's infrastructure week. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, remember, you know, prior to them building the Pixar Pals garage, there was a plan to build, you know, a, a giant garage down close to the five with the idea that that garage would service everyone who's driving up the five from the south that was coming to Disneyland. And in fact, remember that that project was especially controversial because the way Disney had initially planned it is folks would exit the garage and be transported over to Disneyland and effectively go on a bridge over harbor that wouldn't right. allow them and the people and the people in harbor were uh shopkeepers on harbor boulevard were yeah. incensed essentially you're making a, a a tunnel yeah there was no access down which, which disney argued in today's world with with security needs it's like well look we had to do that but in the end because that was so controversial they they wound up building uh pixar pals right next to mickey and friends what i have heard as the one place that they would possibly consider sort of a Skyliner setup that would then bring guests over to the central Disneyland campus is the satellite parking lot that's over by the Anaheim Convention Center, the Toy Story lot. That's always been earmarked for park number three. In fact, if you you go to the summer of 2001 and type in the third theme park, 
you'll get Disney's presentation page for, you know, well, this is what we're considering doing. And there's imagery there of Pooh's Honey Hunt from Japan. And there's imagery there from Typhoon Lagoon. And they were definitely spitballing at that point. But they set up their third park page, assuming that right out of the gate, Disney's California Adventure was a home run. And by the fall of, of 2001, especially when 9-11 happened, that really wasn't the case. Should park number three ever happen, the fact that you, in kind of the same situation that Universal is dealing with Epic Universe or the folks who live, who are staying at the Endless Summer Resorts on the other side of I-Drive, where everyone has to get on a bus to get over there, that's not especially good show in Disney's eyes. So the notion of, right. well, what if we skyline them back and forth? But again, we are a ways off from Park 3, folks, like especially on the heels of of what's going on with Galaxy's Edge. So don't plan on skylining in Anaheim for, for quite a while yet. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a stretch mm-hmm. uh, to say that it would come anytime soon. Yep. All right, Jim, one more, uh, one more listener question. Mm-hmm. Our compadre Chris writes to us from Disney's Fort Wilderness with this. So he's actually writing from the beach at at, uh, at the campground, mm. and he's speaking with a cast member who says that there used to be a fisherman's dock for fishing charters over at Fort Wilderness, but it's been closed for a while now because there's a new resort taking its place, and this is the Reflections mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Resort, right? But Chris writes that the uh, Fort Wilderness isn't doing their Halloween beach bash this year, and that the campground will need to use the property on the east side of the marina. For the beach, even though it's much smaller and has a swampier look to it. So, Jim, what uh, what's the deal with Fort Wilderness and the beach area that they're going to use versus the beach area that Reflections is going to use? This is our next mixed-use resort, mostly DVC. Our more modern, lighter touch on you know a Disney a resort hotel. So. People who are going to be paying the premium to as DVC members and those folks who are going to be staying at this hotel are, are going to expect waterfront views. And <laughs> the name says Reflections. It doesn't say stunning view of the parking lot. So, you know, right. they, they're going to swallow up a lot of the beach just to create the very views the name of this hotel suggests. And that is unfortunate. But again, it was also unfortunate that you know, we lost River Country to this hotel. That's kind of the way of the world, folks, that this may force the folks at Fort Wilderness. I, I know the stretch of beach they're talking about. Right. Anyone who ever did the Sleepy Hollow Hayride, this is actually the portion of the beach you used to come out on because it was the spooky woods. So it may force them to expand the footprint of you know Fort Wilderness in that direction, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I, I'll have to check into my wetlands map and find out whether or not that's part of the what Disney considers protected wetlands over there, though. It looks like that the footprint of the Reflections Lodge mm-hmm. is going to take it towards the eastern end of the cabins that uh, Copper Creek uh, Canyons, the Lakeside ones. Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, the, there is going to be, as I understand it, about a quarter of a mile buffer, so to speak. That, that was where I was going. Were, they, were the, the two hotels going to touch or no? Nah. It makes sense that they didn't. No. If you're paying for Copper Creek, you want a certain amount of isolation. You know, I mean, right. I can find you, you're 10 feet away from your neighbor, but you won't you know, want that beautiful lakeside view. In fact, they're 
are already discussing the contingencies about, well, what do we do during construction? How do we compensate the folks in the, the farthest cabins there that are right. are dealing with the sound of the, you know, the, the people putting the pilings in so that this resort doesn't sink either? Oh, right. Good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's going to be that's going to be very interesting to see where the where one stops and the other begins, because it looks like Reflections is going to be mostly along the shore side mm-hmm. and not go very far into Fort Wilderness. Yeah, but you need a service road. That's true. The folks who work in landscaping are, are going to have their work cut out for them, creating the illusion that you are isolated. Just ignore the pargo that just whizzed by full of new towels. <laughs> I think that's going to be the <laughs> I think that's going to be the other the other challenge. Uh, but still, it, uh, it looks like they have tons of space to do this. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to see how, how all three of these resorts are going to integrate in together. It's going to be interesting. All right, folks, that's going to do it for listener questions today. Coming up after the break, where Jim is going to tell us about the Osborne Holiday Lights. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, Jim, we're in that five-day period between Halloween and Christmas in Walt Disney World. And every year, it seems, lately, uh, whatever Disney announces for its holiday program, the response is some version of, it's fine, but it's not the Osborne Lights. We've talked about it on the show before, Jim, but what was it about the Osborne Lights that, that made everything so great? John Freeland, the gentleman from Disney Creative who actually dealt with Jennings Osborne in regard to setting up the lights at Walt Disney World, actually asked Jennings at one point why he put his his lights, you know, at the display at his house in in Little Rock, Arkansas, so low to the ground. And Jennings' response was, I want people to feel like they're inside the display. So they would then be yeah. filled with the holiday spirit. And so in Disney's case, that was kind of challenging to replicate. In fact, it was incredibly challenging to replicate because the very first year they did this, 1995, Len, in fact, the, the day the show goes live on November 4th, that's the day in 1995 that the four Mayflower 18-wheelers rolled onto Disney property filled with mm. Christmas lights that they had literally pulled out of storage sheds at Jennings' house. At one point, it's, a, it's the holiday season of 1986, and he asked his then six-year-old daughter, Breezy, well, Breezy, what do you want for Christmas? And it's like, well, Daddy, what I'd like is, you know, I don't get to see you very often because you're so busy, but, you know, could you maybe stay home and we could set up some lights around the house? And it was one of those punch-you-right-in-the-gut-daddy moments. You know, they realized, it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, man, I haven't been doing right by my kid. And so it's like, okay, you want holiday lights? You got holiday lights. So, you know, Jennings goes out that day and buys a 1,000 holiday lights. 
and strings them up all over the house. And Breezy thinks this is the greatest thing ever. And Jennings, who never did anything small, I mean, in addition to the holiday displays, he would do these barbecues where he took okay. great pride in the fact that everybody who went to the barbecue went home with 11 pounds of meat. I mean, you'd get like how, a... How do you even cook that much food? Well, that's the thing. It's like a whole chicken. It's like three pounds of beef ribs. And he would throw in a complimentary Osborne hat. Those I'm, I'm looking at the list of products and I kept thinking, could you just, could I swap my hat for a defibrillator? Because, you know, exactly. you know, that much meat. It got to the point where he had, every year he'd add lights, he'd add lights, he'd add lights. And at one point, he had 3.2 million lights up, not just on his house in Little Rock, but because his neighbors on either side had complained, he'd actually bought their houses and was now decorating those as well. And this caused traffic problems. His other neighbors in the area took him to court, and it, it went all the way up to the Arkansas Supreme Court. He lost there and they took it to the U.S. Supreme Court and they declined to reverse the ruling. It was Bruce Laval, who was the senior vice president in charge of the parks at that point, was sitting at home that night in June of 1995, you know, watching Mm -hmm. CNN and saw this story and went into work the very next day. And reached out to John Freeland, again, his creative, the head of creative entertainment for the parks, and said, we've got stuff for the kingdom, we've got stuff for for Epcot for the holidays. And at this point, they are six, seven years into running Disney Hollywood Studios, and they really haven't yet arrived on a good, solid identity for that theme park for the holidays. I mean, kind of like what we're doing with Animal Kingdom now, where we're, we're trying some stuff out. That's it, exactly. And so... John reaches out to Jennings, and Jennings misunderstands John, at least initially, because he's like, why would I want to decorate a residential street in Orlando? (laughs) It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Residential street at Disney MGM, our our backlot tour. And that was the magic phrase, because Jennings, he and his family were crazy Disney fans. They'd come down to the parks, you know, once or twice a year. And so it's like, oh, absolutely, you know. And so a week later, he's in Jennings' driveway, and Jennings is walking him to all of these storage sheds that are up behind the house. But the thing is that this was all about making his kid happy. So, you know, he would go down to, like, the local Walgreens and clean out their entire light display and set that (laughs) up. But that's the thing. It's not professional-grade stuff. It's just literally stuff he's bought off the shelf, and that's... The thing of John is opening up shed after shed going, oh, it's this stuff. and Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's Chinese-made uh, Christmas lights from the early 1980s. Yeah, that's it that exactly. Have, that, have been, that have been in a shed in Arkansas for a few years. Yeah. Probably nothing's going to burn down. It'll be no, fine. Not at all. Yeah. We've got insurance. That's what insurance is for. John turns around, gets a crew from Dizzy down there, gets those four Mayflower moving vans. They load up as much stuff as they can take in that load and then run it back to Disney. And they then, you know, it's just like, well, what do we do with this? You know, and in fact, there's the, the famous story of they're just hauling stuff up and trying to figure out, well, what goes here? What goes where on Residential Street? And, you know, at one point, somebody pulls a purple cat with an arch back out of the van and it's like, 
where exactly does this go? And John gets on the phone to, to Jennings and is like, oh, geez, that's part of my wife's Halloween display. <laughs> you know, could, could, you send, could you send that back? They put crews in residential street for the next three weeks, 24 hours a day, as they, they string up. And this is all they can do in the time they've got. They put up two million lights. And it's just like, geez, I hope this is going to work. And so it's November 25th, 1995. So relatively late. I mean, oh, God, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, and, and more to the point, again, they've been going flat out. So they, they just don't have, have a clue if this is actually going to work. But the last tour go, you know, the tram, last tour goes, tram tour goes out at sunset. Right. And then just as it gets dark, they throw on the lights. And one of the reasons that this connected with people in such a big way is for six years up until that point, the only way you ever got to see residential street is you were in a tram. You drove through it. Right. And here now, guests were able to walk along the street and look at this display. And, and again, following Jennings' conceit, you know, the notion of they're inside of these lights. There's, you know, strings of lights over the top of the street and all that. You're, yeah, you're in the middle of the display. That's the, the best part about it. Yeah. It became a smash hit right out of the gate. When January shut down, John made sure it's like, look, we're going to do this again. And not only am I so sure we're going to do this again. We're not even putting this stuff in a warehouse. We're just packing it up in boxes and we're putting it in the houses on Residential Street. Oh, really? They're just like, like they're like they're actually just uh, putting the decorations away for real. That's it exactly. They're going back into the houses, but at this point, also they've done an inventory of everything they have, and so you know for the <laughs> nineteen ninety six season. And and in fact, what's really cool is in much the same way that Jennings did at his house from 86 to 95. Each year, they did a little bit more. You know, in, in 96 was the year just, that it actually... You can't help yourself. You yeah, well, you know, more to the point, it's like, okay, now we get some time. We can set up a few more lights. So in 96 is when it pushed out into New York Street. That was the first year that they brought out the angels. They created the 65-foot-tall wall of angels. This deal got signed really, really fast, Len. I mean, I never got the specifics, but Jennings was quoted in, uh, he was down there in November of 2003. That's the one year that they didn't present the Osborne that's Lights. That's right. It's when the, yeah, that's when the residential street was demolished. Yeah. That's it, exactly. They had, they had pulled it down starting in July of that year and to build the 5,000-seat stadium for Lights Motor Action. Right. But Jennings at that point was quoted as saying, it's okay. We have a deal with Disney. We've, we've, the lights have been presented there for eight, you know, for eight years at this point, and we have a deal for 10 years more. So in theory, what is that? That's an 18, maybe 18 years. Yeah. Yeah. It comes back in 2004. Then in 2005, Disney signs a deal with the Siemens company. Siemens wanted to turn this into a display for its technology. So the very next year when the Osborne family lights came back, that was the year it became the dancing lights. They put all sorts of dimmers and rheostats in. And now, you know, for the first time ever, these things could perform. There were a lot of people who, who loved that, who would go, you know, it came to see that. But to be honest, there were a lot of people who mourned when we lost Residential Street because you you lost what sort of the tie to what it had in Little Rock when it was, in fact, you know, just sort of a, a an over-decorated residential neighborhood. But with it in the the taller buildings... 
you could do bigger shows, more people could stand in the street and enjoy this. And it was a genuinely popular thing. And if you talk with anybody at Disney MGM or Disney Hollywood Studios, it really did drive attendance. I mean, I'm assuming, oh, yeah. you know, you just saw crazy numbers in that park from November through January. Jump ahead to 2015 at the D23 Expo, we get the announcement that Disney's Hollywood Studios is about to undergo a huge change, that we're going to see Toy Story Land and a Star Wars-themed land and and all of us sort of stood there and it's like okay so when does the other shoe drop yeah and it drops in september that that year that this is the final year for the osborne family lights and we lost jennings in july of 2011 after complications from heart surgery so the family had pulled back a little bit because uh, it, it hurt to to kind of go to this thing that was all about dad and you know yeah. dad just wasn't there anymore but they did come down they did take part in that last year which as you remember glenn as crazy as it had been previously the number of people who pushed into that park to experience that thing one more time oh the crowds were amazing the last year yeah. I mean it was it was always crowded, right? When you're when you were on New York Street, it was always like being in Times Square on New Year's Eve. Oh yeah. With that many that many people. But it was something special the last year. Yeah. And remember that the crowds were so crazy that Disney had no choice. And initially they announced that it was gonna run from I wanna say November twenty seventh through January third and but the crowds were so huge that Disney decided, okay, we have to push back the close. So uh, it didn't actually close till January 6th of uh, 2016. And you can actually go online now and view the number of folks who were there that night. And there's a number of things up on YouTube. And they opted to end with that portion of the close of the Mickey Mouse show with the See You Real Soon. I saw this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a See You Real Soon. Yeah, yeah. And after that, Disney did, you know, entertainment came back. For the holiday season of 2016, we got Jingle Bell, Jingle Bam, the projection show at the, on the Chinese Theater. The very next year, we got Season's Greetings on Sunset Boulevard, another projection show that uses the Tower of Terror as its canvas. And yep. there were a number of conversations about, you know, what do we do with the Osborne Lights? And yep. what was kind of interesting is you got to remember that Celebration had been de-annexed from uh, the Walt Disney World Resort. And I, I've been told from a number of people that they actually reached out. Oh, it's crazy here in Celebration. Oh, I mean, starting, yeah. at, starting at Halloween, the decorations. I mean, so we're, we're recording this a couple of days before Halloween. Mm-hmm. There are people with Ferris wheels, actual Ferris wheels mm-hmm. in their yards in Celebration right now. And someone's someone's done a, a apparently a full-sized mind flare from from Stranger Things <laughs> in their yards. I mean, dude, Celebration's a little crazy when it comes to decorations. Okay. This could be the first Halloween that we've actually been in Celebration. We've actually mm-hmm. been on cruises the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I asked one of our neighbors, like, how many kids... Do we do we expect for Halloween? Because the last Halloween when I was in you know Greensboro, mm-hmm. we got like like thirty six kids. Yeah, and we live downtown, and I mm-hmm. live downtown in Celebration, right? So, mm-hmm. how many people? He's like, well, last year was a little slow. We got nine hundred and seventy five. Huh. But he said plan for eleven hundred. <laughs> the most we've ever got is thirteen hundred kids. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay. 
so that was my reaction. And then there was like, apparently, apparently, there's a thing where mm. in celebration, you don't give out cheap candy. They're like, oh. oh, you're not giving out Smarties, are you? Your children will be shunned in school the next day. Oh. You give out chocolate candy in oh. celebration. So, okay, so fine. So I'd gone to Amazon right. and I ordered like, like 20 bulk packs mm-hmm. of candy. I'm not joking, Jim. The Amazon guy, that the UPS guy that showed up to deliver my Amazon package yesterday, he actually said, knocked on the door and then said, I wanted to make sure you're home before I strap on my weight belt to carry this box up the stairs. Oh. And he did. He strapped on his weightlifting belt so he wouldn't pull a muscle. And he, he carried up this box. He's like, do you need help with this? I'm like, no, just put it in here and I'll cut it open with a, with a knife. But yeah. Holy cow. It's, okay. it's, it's going to be crazy. I can't wait to see what happens. Yeah, 11, 1,100 kids is what we're expecting. Can you do me a favor? I want to see that pile of candy I'll send you a picture of it. It's, it's, Cause it, it it's sounds like, like you could actually, you know, you could build a foxhole, you know, just sort it's, of, you know. It's the, it's the size of a, of a, of a, of a uh, stuffed chair. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's well, amazing. Well, speaking of boxes, though, the the idea that definitely Celebration reached out and the whole notion of what if we take it? What if we do it here? You know, it would totally make sense in Celebration. But the Jennings family wanted it back. And, really? And, and well, the, again, what's kind of intriguing, think about it, because they use so much of that, you know, so much of that stuff was bought off the shelf that most of these light bulbs burned out the first year they were at Disney, the combination of the Central Florida weather and the rain and that sort of thing. But what Disney would do was rewire a lot of the frames that, that Jennings had bought. And in the end, that's what they wound up sending back to the Osborne family. They created up all, you know, a lot of the frames. And in fact, I was just reading a post online from Breezy's husband where they had just gotten the last box back from Disney. And the irony was that the delivery man who was delivering the box to, you know, to Breezy's house, you know, told them a story about, you know, I dealt with your dad all the time. And I was the one, when he started buying Christmas lights in bulk, I was the one who delivered them to your dad. So, you know, I love oh, the, the fact great. that, you know, I'm the one who's bringing them back to you. And it just, you know, my question, uh, to, to, you know, to bring this all to a close is I'm just hoping that somewhere in all of these frames that went back to the Osborne family, was that Halloween cat? Because I hope it finally made it home after accidentally getting sent to Walt Disney World. I, th- I think it's poetic that they would have to search through all of the boxes to find the purple cat, though. Because that's what we had to do for all these years, right? There it's, we go. It's here somewhere. I know. It's just here somewhere. Okay. Well, we can't add any better than that, Len. So, okay. Now, that's killer. All right, folks. That's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. We will find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's entered in the chocolate donut eating contest at next weekend's I Love Chocolate Festival in Huntington Station, New York. Keep your hands and feet away from his mouth, folks, and you'll be just fine. Also, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.